Greetings and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. Have you ever looked back and wondered about the lack of progress in human rejuvenation? I do sometimes. A few decades ago, hormone replacement was all the rage, then came vitamins and minerals, then came the antioxidant theory of aging. During each theory's time in the sun, there was a lot of hype. Researchers made convincing arguments, experiments were conducted, and there was very little, if any, progress. In recent years, our diagnostic and therapeutic tools and methods have become quite sophisticated and powerful. New theories of aging and rejuvenation have developed, and there has been some success in animal models, but nothing robust yet in humans. Could it be that we are barking up the wrong tree? That is what Dr. Michael Rose has been saying for many years now. In this podcast, you will hear about the well-documented but rarely discussed evolutionary biology context of aging. Strap in for a longer podcast this time because it takes a lot of time to lay the groundwork and explain Dr. Rose's decades of work. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, Dr. Michael Rose of the University of California, Irvine. Hi there. Well, tell you what, for those who are uninitiated, could you please first give us the highlights of your research career from the 1970s all the way up to today? What's been the focus? And if you've delved into any new areas of research lately, just kind of the highlights. Okay. Well, I have an important confession to begin with, which is that I started out life as a theoretician and I'd hoped to do a PhD in theory. And John Maynard Smith, who then was one of Britain's leading biologists, said, oh, no, no, Michael, we, we want you to work on this aging project in the summer of 1975. And I said, you know, I really don't want to do that. And he and Brian Charlesworth, I think the leading aging theorist of uh, the last uh, 50 years, spent year or so talking me into working on aging for my doctorate. So by 1976, they finally succeeded and I started doing my doctorate on aging. All right, you started doing your doctorate on aging and I know that you ended up getting into aging research in fruit flies. That's what you're kind of well known for. When yes. did that begin and how did that evolve through the years? Right, so the project that Brian Charlesworth and John Maynard Smith wanted me to work on was a fruit fly aging project. To put it in its simplest terms, they wanted me to use fruit flies to show that evolutionary theories of aging rocked and every other kind of theory of aging sucks. And basically, I have spent all those years since, 44 years of my life, doing that as my major daytime job. And it seems that you did come up with some evidence that that is the case. From what I recall is that you found with successive breeding of traits into fruit flies that you came up with exceptionally long-lived fruit flies that seem to have a plateau of aging in late life where the rate of mortality did not increase in the longest-lived cohort of fruit flies. Is that correct? Getting a little bit ahead of the story here, Justin. Oh, well, let's go uh, take a step uh, back then. So, yes, starting in the 1970s, the first really important experiment that I did showed that you could easily produce much longer-lived fruit flies, not by paying any attention to their free radicals in their diet or what the mitochondria were doing, any of the other fashionable cell molecular theories then or now. 
All you had to do was make natural selection focus on producing a longer-lived fruit fly. And all you had to do to do that was to change the initial age of reproduction in involving population so it would then evolve over multiple generations toward delayed aging. And I showed that very directly in the 1970s, published that result in an obscure journal called Nature. And since then, over the last 40 years, many people have done that experiment. It always works, unlike almost every other experiment in aging research. That is a pretty powerful re result. Has anyone been able to duplicate that in any other animal models? Oh, absolutely. It's been done with uh, various types of beetle. It's been done in mice. If you can recall, uh, do you know what publication or which author did the study in mice? The surnames are Nagai, N-A-G-A-I, and Sabur, S-A-B-O-U-R. And I've met both of them. I actually saw those mice in the uh, early 1990s. They, they're no longer alive as colonies. I take it the um, typical uh, lab mouse, or I, I guess I'm familiar with the Wistar rat, which is very famous for research, mm -hmm. uh, lives uh, two to three years and exceptionally long-lived cohorts make it to maybe 50 months, something like that. Do you recall mm -hmm. from this particular study how long they were able to produce the lifespan of this particular mice in the study? Right. So if looking at absolute longevities is kind of a sucker's game because uh, exactly what you feed an organism, especially a rodent, uh, has a huge impact on their lifespan. So you, you always have to do things relative to a control where the control is as similar as possible to your presumptively longer lived animal as possible. So roughly speaking, I think they got a 15 to 20 percent average lifespan increase. In these experiments, the distinctive part is that average lifespan and maximum lifespan in a finite cohort tend to move in parallel. There's no evidence that you're pushing a mean without pushing maximum uh, okay. in a cohort, which would later turn out to be significant. Okay, so you uh, kind of spurred this type of research in uh, you know evolutionary-driven extension of lifespan, let's just put it that way in my layman's terms. And you did it in fruit flies. Other people have replicated it in other animal studies. And it should be added in many fruit fly studies. Oh, many. Um, yes. Yeah. I, so yeah. so the, this, this is science. It's not sure. special pleading. Uh, definitely a repeatable experiment. That's very important if you're committed to science as opposed to biology, because most oh. of biology features experiments that are very hard to repeat because usually the investigators are fudging the conditions, the analysis. They're seeking a result that matches their, their hypothesis. Sure. Now, let's um, bring it up to speed then. In the last uh, few years, have you been doing any research along these lines or have you pursued anything new lately? Over the last 25 years, we've pursued two major additional lines of investigation. One is our research on late life and the other one is our research on genomics. Okay. And I'm happy to talk about either one in whichever order. Yeah, how about the late life uh, aspect? Well, thank you. Most people don't want to talk about late life because it makes the brains of most biologists hurt. But there's been a little bit of evidence in human data since the late 19th century that demographic aging, which you can define as the acceleration in mortality rates, uh, because everything has a mortality rate. Aging is when the mortality rate accelerates. But that acceleration in mortality rates comes to an end 
late in human lives. The data from the uh, 19th century and early 20th century, that cessation appears to come in the early 90s of years of age. And that result was really massively demonstrated in a paper published in 1939 by Greenwood and Irwin. And of course, in 1939, nobody paid any attention to that result. No, I can imagine, yeah. And the result was essentially lost to science until basically that finding was rediscovered in the early 1990s by two labs, one headed by Jim Kurtzinger, the other headed by Jim Carey. And they published a pair of papers in 1992 that definitively and amazingly showed under very careful laboratory conditions in two different species of insects that aging seems to come to an end demographically in the sense of that mortality rate acceleration coming to a stop. When they published those results, I was amazed. Many, many people working in the aging field were amazed, and many criticisms were published. My colleagues and I came up with one criticism, but basically, uh, especially Jim Kurtzinger, put in a lot of hard work over the next four or five years, pretty solidly demonstrating the reality of that cessation in demographic aging. So I would submit to you that by the late 1990s, it was quite well established that at least some populations under some conditions, cohorts that were handled together, reared together, and so on under carefully controlled conditions would in fact stop aging. And I was like really concerned about this because unlike a regular biologist, I take refutations of core assumptions seriously. So I regarded this as indeed Jim Kurtzinger and Jim Carrey did as a refutation of the idea of a limited lifespan. And the irony is that the idea of a limited lifespan was one of the strongest points of agreement across all branches of aging research, from evolutionary biology to cell biology to molecular biology. And here they were showing in like beautiful, large experiments that it was real. So the basic problem became then, how on earth can we explain this? Now, the explanation that the vast majority of the aging community preferred was that what we were seeing was lifelong heterogeneity in robustness. That's what I would have thought off the top of my head as well. You have an and exceptionally, uh, that cohort just has exceptionally good repair mechanisms or something within their body. Right. In fact, that basic idea was proposed in 1939, in the first paper that really strongly showed uh, the cessation of aging demographically. Now, particularly with my colleague, Larry Muller, we have spent 25 years doing both hardcore uh, numerical work and hardcore experiments showing that that theory is certainly wrong, certainly wrong in populations that show that cessation of aging. And roughly speaking, for that theory to be true, as I put it in my 2005 book, Belong Tomorrow, you'd have to have a population that is a mixture of Woody Allens and Superman. The robustness of the group that makes it into the post-aging phase has to be spectacular, more spectacular than anybody has ever shown in a group of, in a cohort undergoing aging. Basically speaking, people have worked very, very hard to keep that lifelong heterogeneity theory alive. They've used all kinds of imaginary scenarios. They've never shown any evidence that any of those scenarios are correct. And we have published repeated experiments and numerical analyses, which show that none of those models work. And there's a useful compendium of that work in a book uh, authored by myself, Larry Muller, and Cassie Rouser called Does Aging Stop? 
published by Oxford University Press in 2011. And it has a really crushing annihilation of the lifelong heterogeneity theory. And basically, since then, you hardly ever hear about that theory. It's a real rarity. However, by 1994, Larry Muller and I developed an alternative theory. And it turns out that our theory, like much of, for example, modern relativity theory and astrophysics, derives directly from the core evolutionary genetic theory with no additional assumptions whatsoever, no special pleading. You can show that in populations with repeated reproduction, iteroparous populations like humans, most insects, but not all, uh, many other types of animals, you expect on evolutionary theory to see a late life plateau in mortality rates. That is to say, you expect to see a cessation of aging, and moreover, not just demographic aging, but an aging cessation in some physiological parameters or a deceleration in the aging of some physiological parameters, and in fact, partial recoveries of some physiological functions in late life. So if you know the history of, for example, crossing through the sound barrier or what happens as you approach the speed of light, once you get to large values of some parameters, you get bifurcations in dynamics, whereby you enter a very different terrain. And it turns out that once you enter the zone where the forces of natural selection, which are definable mathematical uh, functions, hit zero, you enter a zone where everything changes. There are basically three zones to life. The zone before the onset of reproduction in a population, when natural selection is very strong, and a lot of our intuitions about how evolution by natural selection operates hold quite well. Once populations like ours pass through the first stage of reproduction, then the forces of natural selection, especially the force of natural selection acting on survival, start to fall. And that decline is what gives rise to aging. That's why doing something as simple as postponing the first age of reproduction in a population effortlessly and automatically transforms every aspect of biology required to keep an organism alive indefinitely. But once the population starts to reproduce, the forces of natural selection acting on survival inevitably decline. So that in that second zone of life, you're looking at aging, which means that Almost every aspect of adaptation, from demography to organismal physiology to cell biology to molecular biology and biochemistry, they will all deteriorate together. Their rates of deterioration may slightly vary, but the fact of deterioration will hold very consistently. But that phase comes to an end, and the forces of natural selection stop declining once they hit approximately zero. Then you enter a third, very weird phase where Mortality rates stabilize. Now, I want to emphasize to you and your listeners how bizarre that is. Because in some populations, like human populations, you reach that point in life very late when you're very decrepit, when if you sort of have a, an idea of aging as a physiological process, which by the way, it is not, implies that, well, then you should absolutely be on the slippery slope toward death. Indeed, that was exactly my point of view for my you know, the first 20 years of my career up until the mid-1990s. But in fact, our intuition is fundamentally incorrect. It's very much like the intuition of a Newtonian physicist, which would be, well, once you're going really, really fast, then you should be able to go faster and faster and faster. But actually, 
Einsteinian relativistic mechanics tells us once you're going really, really fast, well, actually, you go, it's harder and harder to go faster and faster, okay? Because you're approaching the limit of speed. Well, bizarrely, once the forces of natural selection have completely collapsed, and you think, wow, you should like die right away. No, you don't. You enter this third sort of through the looking glass Alice in Wonderland phase when the rules of the second phase of life no longer apply. And can people kind of visualize that as, I mean, it seems like many people know older humans. They're in their 80s, they're healthy, and all of a sudden they get in their 90s and it doesn't seem like anything has changed. And they might become a centenarian and it seems like they're still going and it just doesn't seem like they're aging very fast. Is that a good um, way to kind of visualize it? That's a way to visualize it. Now that used to be true from, you know, through recorded European history. Sure. Up until the onslaught of industrial foods, spelled P-H-O-O-D, when we started to completely poison ourselves with seed oils, high fructose corn syrup, you know, gums, incredible uh, spectrum of additives that made food sweeter, uh, more palatable, the longer shelf life. When we did that, we extended the aging process, the data suggests, from about 90 to 105. So if you're a devoted McDonald's consumer, uh, the evidence is that you're going to continue aging until you're at least 105. Reaching a late life plateau where you don't age. Well, you will reach it if you survive past 105. So the modern day data on survival probabilities between 105 and 115 also show stability, despite the nasty diet. But the your death rates have continued to increase from where they were when you were 90 in your cohort. Uh, so it's really ugly. And uh, we've just published two papers on the interaction between diet and aging and plateau patterns. Rutledge, R-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. Grant Rutledge is the first author on those two papers. One is in rejuvenation research and the other one, I think it's nature scientific reports. I could be wrong. Okay. But anyway, look for Rutledge, uh, Grant A. Rutledge, and you can see those two papers. So diet affects the nature of your transition to from aging to late life. And in fact, it does so in a way that is interpretable in terms of evolutionary theory. And that's way too hard for me to get into today. I did give a reasonably good talk at the Ancestral Health Society meeting in 2018, based entirely on Grant Rutledge's data, which you can also read about in these two articles. And I think there I did a, an okay job of explaining how diet affects your transition from aging to late life. Okay. Yeah, people can look that up then. That was in 2018 mm-hmm. you gave that presentation? Yep. Okay, and that's a video that's online? Yep, free. No no free. paywall, no, no barriers. Great. Okay, now we started down this track. You had mentioned that you were studying human late life, but there was another track that you were interested in recently too. Could you touch upon that? The second major theme of my research, which actually dates back to the 1980s, is what is now called genomics. When I was first interested in this project in the early 1980s, we didn't even call it genomics. We just called it population genetics. But by the 1980s, I had produced uh, replicated populations that had postponed aging that lived much longer. And by the 1990s, they were living about twice as long. And now those same populations live 
on the order of three times as long. And, you know, people all over the world have longer lived populations. So, of course, as an evolutionary geneticist, I wanted to know, well, how did that happen genetically? Possibly it happened because of a change at two, three, or seven loci affecting one, two, or seven major physiological processes, in which case we could try to intervene in those, that handful of physiological processes and, you know, uh, do sense. So it's very important to emphasize that evolution as a pattern of forces involving natural selection, recombination, mutation, and so on, doesn't fundamentally care whether uh, the genetic foundations of something are simple or complicated. So, for example, in industrial melanism, the transformation in the coloration of moths and butterflies in Europe in the 19th century in response to the coal pollution, most of the genetic change was due to a single genetic locus. On the other hand, other genetic changes, other evolutionary genetic changes that we know of, are affected by hundreds of loci. So I had this basic question in my mind starting in the 1980s, okay, how many genetic loci are involved? How many transcriptional processes do these affect? How many metabolites are affected? And so on. I wanted to know the hierarchy of molecular causation for the evolutionary genetic transformation I had brought about. You're going to compare your original fruit flies to your long-lived fruit flies, mm -hmm. um, cellular genetic processes, and try and identify uh, what changed here, correct? Correct. And I spent basically 25 years using old-fashioned technologies, things like uh, standard single-gene electrophoresis, two-dimensional multi-protein electrophoresis where you can do hundreds of proteins at the same time. Collaborators of mine looked at patterns of free radical damage and so on. And uh, one of the earliest results came from a collaboration with Jim Fleming, then of the Linus Pauling Institute in Palo Alto, where his two-dimensional protein gel electrophoresis results suggested that a significant percentage of the genome was involved. At that point, like three to four percent of all the genes in a fruit fly genome, which in turn means a lot because there are about 14,000 genes. So, you know, two percent of that, of course, gets you into hundreds of genes right away. But Every one of the technologies that I was using from 1980 to 2005 didn't look at the entirety of the genome, the transcriptome, or the proteome. And until 2006. And in 2006, working with a company that actually purchased my longest lived flies, we did a microarray experiment that looked at all 14,000 of the major transcripts. Uh, associated with genes um, in the fruit fly genome, comparing the longer-lived populations with the, their ancestors. And at that point in time, the longer-lived populations were living more than twice as long. And the answer came back at least 800 of the genes. 800, okay. In the sense of at least 800 of the transcripts were differentiated. Now, when we got that result, one of my colleagues on that project, Tony Long, immediately said, yes, but that could be due to changes in three, four, or five master regulatory genes, because it was also known that very large effect mutants in fruit flies could produce significant changes at hundreds of loci. 
with respect to transcription. So it still didn't, we still didn't really have a solution to the genomic problem. We had evidence that the transcriptome involved transformations of hundreds of sites, but we still didn't know the genomic answer. And then in the late 2000s, we did a genomic experiment, which was published again in that obscure journal Nature in 2010. My uh, graduate student, Molly Burke, B-U-R-K-E, as the lead author. And basically, we got the first evidence for what has now been shown in multiple publications that, in fact, hundreds of sites in the genome produce hundreds of changes in the transcriptome. And furthermore, we now have a paper uh, in BioArchive which shows that between the hundreds of changes in the genome and the hundreds of changes in the transcriptome, there are more than a thousand interconnections. Sounds pretty complicated. Precisely. That word complicated is the single most important word that the listeners to this podcast should bear in mind. Is there one major master pathway for aging, like free radical damage? No. Are there two, three, or four? No. Are there seven? No. There are hundreds at every level. Interconnected. Hundreds, hundreds of things in the genome, hundreds of things in the transcriptome, hundreds of things in the metabolism, hundreds of things at the level of organismal physiology. Anybody who tells you that the fundamental causes of aging are simple is lying to either you or themselves. These days, I think mostly themselves. Because everybody would want the answer to be simple. Yeah, it's not. Of course. Yeah, everyone wants the it answer is, to be simple. But it is categorically not simple. It is categorically complex. I gave a talk on this at RADFest just a few weeks ago with Thomas Barter, who did some of the machine learning required to pick out the strongest interactions among the tens of thousands of interactions that are occurring. If you just look for the strongest, most detectable interactions across these hundreds of points of differentiation, you, you get more than a thousand strong interactions through the molecular physiological hierarchy of aging. Yes. And many people claim you know, aging is highly complex, like, the, uh, like human metabolism or any animal metabolism. And, you know, knowing that it's complex and your explanation here of what's involved would, uh, I'm sure, bring a lot of listeners to think, man, it seems like a insurmountable task to try to untangle all of those changes and to implement some sort of rejuvenation program. Can I stop you there? Yes, it is very complex. What we're talking about is the difference between Jules Verne and the Apollo mission. In Jules Verne, we get to the moon by a bunch of, you know, nice upper class French people getting an artillery shell hmm. and a very big cannon, and it blasts off the moon, it lands on the moon, you have lunch on the moon, and then you get back into your artillery shell and somehow you fall back to Earth. That is the way aging research and especially rejuvenation research is now being described and thought of. In other words, my point of view for decades has been that most of the stories that biologists have told about aging are attractive but untrue. The project is really hard, the project of substantially extending human lifespan. Nonetheless, I believe it is fundamentally a tractable problem in the same way someone like Werner von Braun could say that the Apollo mission was a tractable problem. Give me big enough rockets, give me enough resources, we'll do it in stages, we can get there, and we can bring the astronauts back. So I've been saying this now for decades, 
what we need is not Jules Verne, but NASA. Well, we've got the National Institute on Aging. I'm sure that's exactly what it's doing. No. Absolutely not. The listeners of this Every- podcast are very well aware that the National Institutes of Health and Aging and men- most of the research dollars are not going into a, a, a dedicated, comprehensive rejuvenation program in any way, manner, or form. So we're with uh, the podcast listeners, I'm sure, are with you on that point. You get that, and they get that. Now, the beautiful news is that I think, like the Apollo mission, there are a series of concrete steps that can be taken. I have published those concrete steps. Uh, it's, a, it's in an article called Four Steps for the Control of Aging Following the Example of Infectious Disease. I published it in um, 2016 with a bunch of co-authors. I gave a talk on that at RADFest in 2017. My talk to RADFest this year was basically on step three. And let me explain those steps. Yeah, explain them here. They're four in number. First step, just as with the controversy about infectious disease that existed from 1840 to 1920, we have to give up on entirely erroneous theories about what aging is. Just as from the first publication of the contagion theory for infectious disease in 1840, the contagion theory of disease had to win over the established theory, which had existed since classical times, which was the miasma theory, which basically associated infectious disease with bad smells. Believe it or not, that was what almost every educated person believed into the late 19th century, which is why so little progress had been made. Over the course of 80 years, a protracted intellectual battle was waged. And of course, you know some of the famous figures in this, like Koch and Pasteur, Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur was sort of the tip of the spear. And Louis Pasteur did some ingenious experiments on this. And basically, over the course of 80 years, they crushed the established theory. Exactly the same situation exists with respect to aging in our time. The conventional theory since classical times, again, has been that aging is a physiological process of deterioration. The whole language by which most people describe aging is predicated on that assumption. It's such an embedded assumption that when my students and I, my colleagues and I say, aging is not a physiological process, people react like, what did you just say? Mm -hmm. But if you think about what I was talking about earlier, it's the only way to make sense of the fact that aging stops. Aging really were a cumulative physiological process, starting with adulthood, start of adulthood, continuing all the way to death. How on earth does it stop just when the organism is most decrepit? And I should remind podcast uh, listeners that you mentioned earlier in the podcast that this experiment has been run many, many, many times in many different uh, animal models, including fruit flies, that aging stops. Aging stops and aging is entirely manipulable with uh, evolutionary tools. And we've also shown that uh, well, in the book published in 2011, Does Aging Stop? We show some physiological data, much of it collected by another one of my doctoral students, Parveen Shavastani, who's published repeatedly on this now, that in fact, even physiological deterioration stops and for some characters, and other characters actually get better once the aging process stops, bizarrely enough. Yeah, I just want, to remind, I just want to remind people here, you were going on your first point here, the first part of remedying aging and that this experiment has been run. So continue on. Repeatedly. So the first step in any technological feat of great difficulty 
is to use the right science. So long as people are using cell molecular reductionist theories of aging as a physiological process, be it free radicals or the seven deadly sins of sins, we will have nothing but frustration or accidental slow progress. The first step, therefore, is accepting evolutionary genetic reality. Evolution okay. by natural selection tunes aging, and it does so in ways that involve complex genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, and metabolomics. And you know, since 2010, we've been publishing on this repeatedly, and we will publish more and more and more on this all through this decade until hopefully by 2030, it's over. Nobody will anymore believe that it's a handful of physiological processes, that that will be dead. So hopefully we will finish the first step over the next 10 years. The second step requires me to refer again to some of the details of the history of our war against infectious disease. So you might think, well, you know, we really started to make progress against infectious disease with the advent of antibiotics you know, and antivirals. Absolutely not true. The greatest progress against infectious disease was made simply by step one, abandoning the miasma theory and embracing the theory that an odorless, colorless, and otherwise invisible microbial pathogen could be the cause of infectious disease. And therefore, what you had to do was to reduce your exposure to those pathogens. Number one, washing yourself, especially your hands. Number two, ensuring supplies of clean water, pasteurized milk, note the designation pasteurized after Louis Pasteur, and making sure your food was not contaminated by bacteria that cause botulism. So we can, in fact, do an enormous amount toward significantly extending our health span using evolutionary principles separately from great medical breakthroughs. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean to say that I'm talking about not having great medical breakthroughs. I love great medical technology. I'm simply saying they're very simple uh, hygienic, I'm using scare quotes for the word hygienic, hygienic steps, which is to say lifestyle changes whereby you attune your lifestyle with your evolutionary history. And that's what our recent papers with Grant Rutledge have all been about. And if you go to Grant Rutledge's Google Scholar page, you can see about 20 papers that he's done on this topic, sometimes with me. So basically, you can use evolutionary insights to fine-tune your lifestyle so as to greatly enhance your chronic health. And for example, you can get rid of the last 15 years of aging from 90 to 105 simply by avoiding every kind of industrial food product from seed oils to high fructose corn syrup to diets with massively abundant sugars. Okay. Simply Podcast listeners are very uh, attuned to the sugar problem in all the foods, that's for sure. Sugar is one example, but seed oils are another. I was blown away. I mean, I avoid seed oils much as I can, but I was blown away by the fact that some nutritionists estimate that typical American diet, 20% of it is soybean oil. Right. And Just then you add canola oil, oil and corn oil and safflower oil. A very large fraction of your calories are coming from these oils, which not only in and of themselves are toxic, but when you cook with them, they form all kinds of completely nasty, highly carcinogenic compounds. And I should remind podcast listeners that when you go to a nice uh, fancy restaurant that serves all natural and organic food, 
they are probably cooking it in soybean oil and canola oil. And that's a way that you don't realize you're still getting a lot of those oils if you're going out to get prepared food. Unless you go to a, a real primal kitchen kind of place. Yes, true. There, there are a handful of hardcore places. There are, yeah. yeah. So in fact, one of the things I do, you know, or did, because I, I no longer go to restaurants, so I can avoid it at all, is I ask what oils they use. And in fact, I have a little card that a friend of mine created that lists all the things I don't want in my food. <laughs> now, nonetheless, you know, you have the, the fundamental uh, bad actor incentives in that it's the, the incentive of the waiter to say, oh, no, no, we don't do any of those things. But I, th there are pretty hardcore paleo-ish restaurants where you can avoid all those things. Now, the next step you can take, if you're over 40 or 50, and I think that this advice now applies to you, Justin, <laughs> Yes, is avoiding also any novel agricultural foods that your ancestors didn't eat prior to the ad adoption of agriculture. That is to say, as you go forward in chronological time, you have to go backward in evolutionary time. And it turns out there are very deep evolutionary reasons for this. And they're in these two publications that we just came out with this month, that are online this month from Grant Rutledge. And uh, we're going to be continuing to work in this area, especially showing the mathematics more explicitly. This is a very general principle, it turns out. Basically, any population that undergoes an evolutionary change will rapidly adapt to that evolutionary change at young ages. But as you go to later and later ages, your adaptation to that changed diet will lag. So your children absolutely cannot eat refined sugars or seed oils, but they could eat, you know, baked bread. They could eat steamed rice, but you can't, Justin, and I can't because, you know, I'm 65. So you have to give up on large categories of foods. If giving up industrial foods takes the transition to late life back to 90, I believe that the transition to a paleo diet after the age of 40 or 50 will further push down to earlier ages, the transition to the late life plateau, in still better health. This gives the prospect, if for example, we can stop aging at the age of 75 and do so with a level of health of somebody who's 55 or 60 on an industrial diet, of reaching a point where conventional medicine, as it now exists, could massively extend our lifespans. Because if you have the health or health that is no worse than a modern day 60-year-old indefinitely, you can survive uh, a variety of procedures. You can't survive at 90. You can survive open-heart surgery. You can survive the extirpation of an organ, be it a pancreas or a kidney. You could even survive a lung transplant or a heart transplant. You could survive cerebrovascular repair. So step two of my four-step plan is transforming your physiology, uh, ideally right away for our children by getting away from industrial foods. So roughly speaking, it's a two-phase recommendation. Under the age of 30, go ahead, eat organic agricultural foods, which doesn't include modern-day seed oils or high fructose corn syrup or abundant sugar. And then between 30 and 50, transition to a scientifically correct paleo diet, which is primarily plant matter, you know, sorry, carnivores. There are only a few human populations that have been primarily carnivore. The vast majority of hunter-gatherer populations, by bulk, primarily eat plant matter. Uh, they may, in some cases, get the majority of their nutrients from animal sources, which is, by the way, not 
necessarily muscle tissue, but in fact includes things like organs and, and marrow and brain, uh, which are spectacular from the sampling nutrients. So that's phase A and phase B of step two. Nobody should eat industrial foods. The people who came up with those foods starting in the late 19th century are mass murderers. They have killed uncountable people due to an epidemic of cardiovascular disease and cancer, which were simply not anywhere near as common 150 years ago, even when you correct for age. So that second step would be like what happened between 1870 and 1914, when European cities literally cleaned up their sewers, cleaned up their rivers, pasteurized their milk, properly sterilized their food before it was canned, and so on. Okay, before we get to step three, just briefly, since we're talking a little bit about diet, what about olive oil? As you are well aware, in the blue zones, um, the research of long-lived populations and like Sardinia and Crete and places like mm-hmm. this, they consume mm-hmm. massive amounts of olive oil, which is a reduced plant-based oil, and they live to be uh, some of the longest-lived populations. What would be your view on olive oil? Well, the evidence from, I think they're called Ampura, Ampure, the Greek gigantic vase-like containers that were used to ship wine and olive oil all over the Mediterranean. That evidence suggests that at least Western Eurasian North African civilization featured long-standing consumption of olive oil. And therefore, I believe that there's been plenty of time for us to adapt to the consumption of olive oil at early ages. Mainly for those populations, though. For those populations, I'm not aware of any similar evidence for uh, Southeast Asian or Chinese or something. Okay. All right. So, well, I just wanted know, to ask that as kind of a curious question about oils, you know. My answer to that question should reveal a very important principle, which is that there's actually a lot of evolutionary phylogeographic detail required to tune the first part of your post-industrial diet, that is to say your non-industrial diet. So if you're Southeast Asian, entirely in your ancestry, you've never adapted to wheat consumption, but you have adapted to rice consumption and so on. Uh, there's a lot of detail that we need to pay attention, just as from you know, the 1860s to the 19-teens, there was a lot of detail in the provision of pasteurized milk, clean water, safe food that was required for people to pay attention to, to transform to the kind of cleaner lifestyle we had after the First World War. They greatly reduced the spread of infectious disease and notably before the advent of step three in the conquest of infectious disease. And step three was the accumulation of fairly significant, but still relatively ad hoc pieces of knowledge about infectious disease. Uh, Starting in the middle of the 19th century and continuing massively, we became better and better at identifying pathogens. Microscopy greatly improved. We started to understand vaccination. We started to use vaccination. In the 1920s and 30s, you had your first crude antibiotics, which were sulfa drugs, which were then in the 1940s replaced by the revolutionary and spectacular antibiotic penicillin, which gave rise to the post-World War II antibiotic era. Now, very interestingly, again, in the 1980s, we were faced with another really deadly pathogen, HIV, for which we had to develop really good antivirals. So the conquest of infectious disease continues, and of course, to this very day, when we're using the very cutting edge of molecular technology to go after the SARS-CoV-2 
virus that causes COVID-19 disease. But the thing is, we have all of the science done because we now very thoroughly understand our adaptive and innate immune systems. We have an excellent understanding of viruses, their genomes, exactly what they do with those genomes, how they work, what receptors they target. We can, all those are solved scientific problems. We're just technologically faced with each pathogen as it turns up. So instead of having to fight for 50 or 60 years about each pathogen, bang, all the technology is brought to bear. All the biotechnology is very well developed, and it's a race that is scaled in months rather than decades. In phase three of our conquest of aging, we will be using what is now the cutting edge of omic technology, genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics, to go after the very complex causal hierarchy of aging at the molecular level. And the key addition to the omic technologies is machine learning. Because with that level of complexity, you can throw up your hands and say, as a biologist, well, we can't handle that. And that's true. The human brain cannot handle the full omic complexity of aging. But we have machine learning that is perfectly comfortable with dealing with hundreds of things, go to hundreds of things, go to hundreds of things by thousands of interconnections. That's what the damn thing does. That's why Google works. That's why Amazon Web Services works. And that's how Amazon gets your damn book to you in two days, if you want a physical book, if you want something that archaic. Okay? So we now have the technology fully there, ready to be picked up for the conquest of aging, so long as we've gone through the first two steps, so long as we abandon the chimerical idea that this is a handful of molecular pathways like David Sinclair would have you believe or Aubrey de Grey would have you believe. They're wrong, period. They're wrong. They may be popular. They may have thousands of people who follow them and in some cases worship them. But unfortunately, scientifically, they're wrong. It would be great if they were right, but they're unequivocally wrong. And we have to embrace the reality of what we're dealing with. All right, and then step four. Step four is where we now are with respect to infectious disease. So when machine learning solves a problem for you, it's not the same thing as giving you full scientific insight. It just damn works, right? Yeah. When we were doing vaccination and using antibiotics for the first times, we really didn't know how the vaccines worked. We really didn't know all the molecular details of how the antibiotics worked. That came later. That came starting in the 1960s. So 120 years after the germ theory was first proposed in 1840, only after 1960 did we really start to work out how the immune systems that we have work, the molecular genetic details of the pathogens, and everything else. Okay? So step four is when we really have aging as nailed as we have infectious disease now. So we have a 180-year history to emulate. And you know when the evolutionary theory of aging was first really cogently proposed? The 1940s. So we're a century behind the infectious disease story. Mm-hmm. Okay? You would think, though, that with our modern diagnostic tools and machine learning and things like that, that we could accelerate it a bit. Ah, then you don't know the history of our conquest of infectious disease. <laughs> because like every other academic battle, and at first it was an academic battle, and then a battle in the medical schools, it required the defeat of the leading scholars and then the leading physicians one by one. 
we're exactly the same place with respect to aging. Everyone that the NIH funds believes aging is a physiological process that's relatively simple, that's tractable using the tools and ideas of the 1980s and 1990s. With those beliefs, they are sentencing tens of millions to death every year. And it was the same thing with the miasma theory all through the 19th century. Very charismatic people like Florence Nightingale clung to the miasma theory and they had enormous prestige and enormous charisma. Eventually they realized they were wrong. I don't know what level of guilt they felt. Academics are notorious for not feeling guilty about espousing erroneous theories decades after they're dead. But I think people with medical degrees are probably more inclined to regret their mistakes. What about the counterexample here? Just off the top of my head, just as a, a kind of a fun proposition to you, how people who were correct on infectious disease, but also were incorrect about certain diseases like scurvy or beriberi sure. and things sure. where they, were, they went down the wrong track and they actually sentenced a lot of people to death by not realizing that uh, some of the diseases they were looking at were not actually infectious, but were rather nutritional deficiencies. Thank you for that. So when you have a really important scientific theory that is correct going up against a really big scientific theory that is wrong, the people with the correct scientific theory can make specific mistakes. And the people with the erroneous theory can actually occasionally yeah, get it wrong. Have some success. Random. Right, yeah. So for example, the original name, the, the name malaria refers to bad air. Mm. Our whole view of malaria was that it came from the stinky air of low-lying swampy areas. So that gave rise to a movement to drain the swamps and clean them up. Well, doing that helped reduce the population of anopheline mosquitoes, which were carrying the plasmodium organism, which was the actual agent of the disease. So accidentally, some of the things that David Sinclair or Aubrey de Grey say will in fact be correct accidentally. And, and there indeed, might be something positive that happens from a few of the things that they do. Exactly. But you can actually look at that systematically in genomic analysis. So in 2012, Molly Burke and I published a paper where we looked at the actual genomics of aging and compared them to the proposed genetics of aging that had been developed using 1980s, 1990s biological techniques. So that was a list at that time of about 104 aging pathways that had been identified. And we looked at how well the 1980s, 1990s methods fared compared to the genomic point of reference. And we compared the 104, the then 104 gene ontology, aging genes, so-called, with 104 genes picked at random repeatedly. The random choice of genes fared better than the 104 candidate aging pathways identified using the methods of the 1980s, 1990s. You've got to be kidding me. No, that's published. You can look it up. Hmm. So the ideas of people like David Sinclair and Aubrey de Grey, just to mention the two most famous at the moment, some of those ideas will be correct. At a frequency, I would suggest no better and perhaps worse than random guesses. Okay? okay. In the same way that some of the random ideas from the miasma theory turned out to be right. And some of the specific ideas for those who advocated the microbial pathogen theory of infectious disease happened to be wrong, okay? However, there's a titanic difference in the overall success rate 
between operating with the correct scientific theory and getting and a few the, things wrong, a couple of things wrong. Right. Okay. Because science is never 100% right. No. And using a systematically erroneous theory and, and occasionally getting things right. A couple of successes. Understood. So, uh, number four on your uh, platform, then, steps to uh, curing aging is mm -hmm. basically once you have it understood, then you've, you develop the technologies that can manipulate this complex. No, actually, if you, you think know. carefully about what I said, no. you are already developing technologies in step two and three. Okay, okay. The technologies of step two are fairly simple and crude. Pasteurization is a very sure. simple and crude technology. You're heating up the milk enough to kill the bacteria that might otherwise be in the milk. Uh, you're using sanitation. You are refining the water, filtering it, sterilizing it, or chlorinating it to, again, reduce the concentration of pathogens in the water. Okay? Those are technologies. In the same way, you know, primal kitchens that are figuring out ways to cook palatable foods that don't use seed oils, refined sugars, preservatives, or gums, that's a technological problem, okay? So step three in the anti-aging thing is using machine learning to figure out, I would say most concretely, which candidate drugs are going to be less devastating for the aging process. If you have a choice, say, of five different antidepressants to use, but you do an omic analysis which shows that three of them will actually have systematically adverse effects on cardiovascular disease long-term, in other words, for the aging process. You go, well, don't take those three antidepressants, take these other two, which are relatively benign with respect to the aging process. And this type of omic AI analysis or analytics can get you there. And then step four. In step four, you really know what's going on. Remember, machine learning is type of AI. What the machine learning is figuring out is not the same thing as a fully developed scientific theory, okay? Machine learning will give you an answer to a specific problem. Like, you know, I have six candidate cardiovascular medications. Which one of them is going to be good for chronic cardiovascular conditions as well as benign with respect to the aging process? AI omics together with live assays in experimental organisms, in vitro cell cultures, or patients, where you can easily monitor transcriptomic proteomic and met metabolomic changes in a non-traumatic way, will enable us to answer those questions. So right now, we have a wide spectrum of medications available for most conditions, okay? Most of them, I think people would agree, have significant side effects. And side effects are generic, which of course fits perfectly with the modern evolutionary omic analysis of aging, right? Because if aging is, in fact, omically complex, you expect any pharmaceutical for a chronic condition to have complex side effects. Mm. It's, it's a direct corollary of the correct scientific theory for aging. Because these chronic diseases are indeed inextricably bound up with aging, right? Exactly. So we are now just, I would submit, this year at the start of phase three. Because this year, Thomas Barter, Larry Muller, myself, and others are submitting the first paper that does one of those step three analytics on how the hierarchy of the molecular causes of aging work, which you can see in BioArchive. Okay. Th Thomas T. Barter, B-A-R-T-E-R. B-A-R-T-E-R. Yeah. 
Got it. Regular English language word for barter. Um, so we're just starting phase three this year. Okay. And I just want to make sure everyone understands now what phase four. Phase four. So very simply, the, the concrete way to understand this is with respect to infectious disease, we've been in phase four since the 1970s. Where we understood, uh, you know, what's going on with infectious disease and how it interacts with the body and things like that. And in, in detail, in, in full-on molecular de- detail. And I'm just saying, once we understand aging from that kind of uh, that analog, once we understand mm-hmm. aging in that way, then we will be able to develop even better tools for... Exactly. And at that point, once we get to phase four, Justin... Yes. I think we can crush aging in the same sense we've crushed infectious disease so that chronic major disorders like cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, cancer, kidney disease, and so on will kill a few percent of people a year instead of tens of percents. Okay? Okay. Everything we've done with infectious disease over the last 180 years, we can also do with aging if we follow these four steps. And I can see how it is a difficult um, path ahead because of the um, funding and the attention. Uh, you mentioned the you know, NIA and NIH and, and things like that. Um, but obviously you are able to get, um, uh, with your position, uh, continue on your research but I imagine the people who you are working with, your cohort and your um, collaborators are a pretty small voice in the aging community overall. Correct. At this point, yeah. Just as with Henley, Koch, and Pasteur up until 1970, sorry, 1870, it's a small group of us. Within evolutionary biology, I should say, very little that I've said is controversial in terms of the basic scientific presuppositions. Within evolutionary biology, myself and the small band of people like me, we're just standard mainstream evolutionary biologists. There's nothing special about us. Unfortunately, especially American biology is totally dominated by cell molecular reductionism. And cell molecular reductionism works extremely well when dealing with COVID-19. It works extremely poorly when you're dealing with cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, or cancer. And unfortunately, NIH is dominated by cell molecular reductions. That's true. I agree with you on that. Yeah. Okay. We've been talking here for quite a while and uh, you've really clearly explained, you know, the evolutionary theory of aging here. One thing that popped into my head during our conversation, just one last thing I wanted to touch on is what about things like the Yamanaka factors that can turn any old cell into a young embryonic cell instantly, essentially? Okay. Because a lot of people think that way. A lot of people have that in their mind. There's like, hey, we're going to flip these four switches and boom, we're just, you know, everything's going to get young again instantly if you can apply that to every cell in your body, right? Let me now surprise you. Okay, surprise me. I think of those kinds of stem cell technologies the same way I think of draining the swamps for malaria. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. I think that's a very exciting technology. And when... People are consuming an aging-appropriate diet in terms of their evolutionary ancestry, which varies depending on your ancestry. And when people are starting to pick the right drugs because they've been through a good evolutionary omic screen, you know, 
within the pharmaceutical community. I'm very excited about the prospects for doing fantastic tissue level repair so that we regrow uh, necrotic patches of heart tissue so that we have regrowing the liver, I think, is a very tractable project. Potentially patching kidney, uh, repairing major blood vessels. I think that's a very exciting technology. Um, so I, I, I'm delighted with a lot of cell to tissue to organ level technology used in the right way in the right context. It's going to help a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, you know, a lot of the calculations that were done to make the Apollo project work were done to first order using Newtonian physics because they were good enough. Yes. However, a lot of modern day uh, pieces of rocketry and telecommunications and satellite work, in fact, have to be done now with Einsteinian calculations because of relativistic effects. So, you know, the early technologies we will have for anti-aging will not be radically different from technologies that we have now. They'll just be used more appropriately rather than being used in a naive Jules Verne manner. Like, you know, just randomly injecting yourself with stem cells, which is a joke. Um, they will be used more appropriately with full attention to the devastating complexity of the aging omic hierarchy. So you'd be hopeful anyway, at least some of this money that is going into the cellular type reductionist processes and, um, and damage repair that there will be some nuggets of information that come out of that, that not only some of these things will be beneficial for you know, the health of people, but it will also help us fill in some of the gaps of the evolutionary uh, aging pathways. That, Actually, no, not, not in the last I don't think so. No, no, no. I, I already referred to the paper we published in 2012, which showed that their guesses and their experimental findings are no better are worse. than random. Or actually worse. Or worse than random. So they're actually systematically biased away from the truth. Nonetheless, I will say that I think that only 90 to 95% of the money that NIA spends is wasted. By pure accident, you know, some 3 to 6% is probably well spent. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, is there anything lastly that you want to uh, say to the audience to uh, wrap things up here? Sometimes uh, people have a new paper coming out or are going to be at, presenting at a conference or uh, just some advice for people to uh, live healthier and longer. Anything on the top of your head? Well, I have a website called 55, that's numerals 55, theses, T-H-E-S-E-S, where I summarize a lot of our thinking about steps one and two of this four-step process. And that's, you know, no, <clears throat> no paywall, no limitations, text and podcast, no tables of boring data, no obscure graphs, uh, English language words. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a bit of a bear. Like you have to, it's 55 sentences which are in turn explained by about 60 pages of text and about 60 podcasts. Um, but all of them are much shorter than this one. They're about eight to 12 minutes in length. Sure. Good di digestible chunks. In that exactly. Way. Digestible chunks. And we're always publishing new papers. Uh, you can find them on Google Scholar using Michael R. Rose. My middle initial will help you. 
Thank you very much for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. It was fun. Even though teasing out the complex interactions that control evolutionary aging in humans and eventually building the tools to reverse it will take a good deal of time and effort, the good news is that from this perspective, you can already make a big dent in your rate of aging through simple modifications in diet, exercise, and overall lifestyle. These are things which are well known for years to help out with overall health anyway, so keep it up. And maybe we will all live a lot longer than expected and be able to partake in future rejuvenation therapies. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.